Great, thanks so much, Joe. And let me add my welcome. Um, my name's John T, and it's great to be able to welcome you to this service this afternoon. We're going to turn um, back to God's word now. Uh, we're going to look into what God has to say to us as his church. Um, I'm going to turn um, back to the book of Romans, to Romans chapter 14. But before we um, dive into that, let me just say, last Sunday, we began a very important conversation. Uh, the conversation about racism, and particularly racism within the church. And that's a conversation that needs to be ongoing. It, it's not, I have this real fear that we kind of act as though, well, we've talked about that now. No, this is a, a, this is a conversation that we need to keep having. It needs to be on our agenda. We need to keep thinking and praying this through. And so let me... Um, suggest there's a book that you could get hold of that would be really helpful to read and there's loads of good stuff on this but one I'd recommend to you is by a guy called Ben Lindsay Um, he's a pastor of a church here in London Uh, the book is called we need to talk about race Um, and I've been reading it this week and it's excellent and what I'm going to suggest is that perhaps if you're up for it you could get a copy of that book Um, have a read of it yourself and then in a few weeks time we'll set aside a Saturday morning when we could come together um, and fast and pray about this issue and discuss it some more and talk about how we can continue to keep this on the agenda and move forward so there'll be loads more information in the weekly email about that but if you're up for it then let's let's keep talking keep praying keep working at this uh, issue But we're going to come um, back to the book of Romans now, Romans 14. And over the next three weeks, there's really just one sermon um, split over three weeks. Uh, This section that we're embarking on in Romans 14 is a big, long chunk that we're going to break up into three bits. Uh, And it fits the flow of all that we've been seeing in Romans in the last few weeks. So hopefully you're getting a sense of how Romans works. Remember, Romans chapter 1 to 11 are all about what God has done, the mercy of God, that he sent his son Jesus to die on the cross to pay for our sin, to satisfy the punishment that we deserve, the mercy of God that has justified us and has adopted us and brought us into God's family, extraordinary mercy. All of that is in Romans chapters 1 to 11. And then in chapter 12, you get that great statement, therefore, in view of God's mercy, now live this way. And Paul has been setting out what it means to live in the light of God's mercy, to live lives motivated by mercy. And the dominant theme that we keep hitting up against, the the kind of key note that we keep hearing, is that it will be a life of love. A life of real love, sincere love, deep love, that overflows into every area of our lives. And that same theme is very much in view as we come to Romans 14. And the particular issue is love within the church. And love when we disagree with one another. Paul is very concerned that we should be a church who love one another. And this is one chunk that flows all the way from Romans 14 verse 1 through to Romans 15 verse 13. Paul cares about this so much He cares about how we treat one another so much that he devotes this big, long chunk of his book to exploring this theme. 
And let me just show you roughly how it works. Romans chapter 14, verses 1 to 13, that's the bit we're going to do today, really starts by looking at our attitudes towards one another. What are going to be our attitudes? How do we think about one another? And then from verses 14 through to the end of the chapter, verse 23, talks about our actions. Well, in, the, in light of our attitudes towards one another, what actions are we going to uh, do? How are we going to behave towards one another? And then chapter 15, verses 1 to 13, show the foundation that those attitudes and actions rest upon. So that's really um, what we're going to do for the next three weeks. Today we're going to think of attitude, next week actions, next week foundations. And we're going to see and explore this theme of how we are a church who truly love one another. So why don't we pray and ask for God's help and then we're going to hear God's word read and we'll explore it together. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you again for your extraordinary mercy Thank you for that mercy that has saved us. And Lord, we ask that today and in the coming weeks, you would teach us again to live in view of that mercy, that you would be transforming our minds, renewing our thinking, that we would be shaped to be the church, the people that you want us to be. Lord, we pray particularly this afternoon that you would be challenging our attitudes towards one another, We ask that we would be a church family who have a deep love for each other. Lord, change us and help us, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, let's hear God's word read, and then we'll explore it together. Hey, Globe people. I'm going to read Romans chapter 14, verse 1 to 13. Accept the one whose faith is weak, without quarreling over disputable matters. One person's faith allows them to eat anything, but another whose faith is weak eats only vegetables. The one who eats everything must not treat with contempt the one who does not. And the one who does not eat everything must not judge the one who does, for God has accepted them. Who are you to judge someone else's servant? To their own master, servants stand or fall, and they will stand, for the Lord is able to make them stand. One person considers one more, one day more sacred than another. Another considers every day alike. Each of them should be fully convinced in their own mind. Whoever regards one day as special does so to the Lord. Whoever eats meat does so to the Lord, for they give thanks to God. And whoever abstains does so to the Lord and gives thanks to God. For none of us lives for ourselves alone, and none of us dies for ourselves alone. If we live, we live for the Lord, and if we die, we die for the Lord. So whether we live or die, we belong to the Lord. For this very reason, Christ died and returned to the life, so that he might be the Lord of both the dead and the living. You then, why do you judge your brother or sister, or why do you treat them with contempt? For we will all stand before God's judgment seat. It is written, as surely as I live, says the Lord, every knee will bow before me, every tongue will acknowledge God. So then each of us will give an account of ourselves to God. Therefore, let us stop passing judgment on one another. Instead, 
make up your mind not to put any stumbling block or obstacle in the way of a brother or sister. Let me sum up the main point of where we're heading this afternoon in a simple phrase. This is what I want us to remember and to chew on. The church is a family, not a herd. One of the striking things about the book of Romans is that 17 times Paul uses the phrase brothers and sisters. Even in chapter 14, he uses it four times. Because Paul, as he writes this letter, wants us to understand that the mercy of God brings into existence not an institution, but a family. And therefore, the mercy of God needs to lead us to live like a family. But the danger is that often churches become more like a herd. So let's talk about herds. Let's think zebra. They all look the same. They all eat the same stuff. They all wear the same clothes. They all sound the same. It's difficult to know where one zebra starts and the next one finishes. Expressing your individuality is not really the vibe within a herd. You just want to be like everyone else. And when a giraffe comes and says, hey, can I join your herd? You say, no, because you're not like us. Now, we're not zebra, we're humans. But we still experience the power of the herd. There is still a desire within us to conform and to be like those around us. This is why crazes like fidget spinners take off. I mean, who wants a fidget spinner until everybody's got one? And there have been countless psychological experiments done and studies to show the way that we are so shaped and so conformed to the people that we're around. So we have this desire within us to belong. But the weird thing is we also have a desire that wants to express our individuality. We want to be our own person. And that paradox, that tension between wanting to belong, but also wanting to be an individual, is the struggle that we live with. I mean, right there, that tension is like the theme of so many films that we watch. You know, the penguin who wants to dance, or the shark who doesn't want to eat meat, or the ant who refuses to stay in line. Over and over, we want to belong, but we want to stand out. That's the paradox we live with. Which brings me very nicely to the idea of family. You see, the family is not like a herd. And families are better than herds. Now, I am aware that for some of us, our experience of physical family has been really hard. But when family is functioning as it should, then family is the place where both of those two desires can be fully met and fully expressed. The desire to belong and to be part of something, but also the desire to be an individual and to be my own person. Both of those things happen within a family. And that is what Paul is saying in Romans 14. You are a family and you are to express your opinions and your diversity together. Now, I guess many of us would say, yeah, absolutely. We want the church to be a family. We talk about Globe Church being a family a lot. But the danger is that we slip more into being like a herd. Where in order to be part of the church, you need to conform to our way of doing things. Church can become a community that squashes debate. And where the perception is that you just have to shut up and fit in. 
That's not how church should work. That is how cults work, where you are controlled, but, but not in the church, not in a family. So Paul takes this huge, long chunk of his book in order to help us think through what do we do when we disagree with one another? How do we avoid becoming a herd? And how do we express the beauty of being a family? And the key to his argument is not that we should just all agree with one another, not that we should all conform and become the same, but rather that we should accept one another. That's what he says in Romans 14 verse 1, accept the one whose faith is weak. And then he says it again in chapter 15, verse 7, accept one another then. That is the key theme of this section. This is how families work. You accept one another. And and listen carefully to this. This is really important. Accepting one another will produce a deeper and more profound unity than agreeing with one another ever could. Agreeing with one another will produce a hurt but accepting one another will produce a family. So that's the theme, accept one another. That's the attitude we're to have. Now, let me just say this word, accept. Sometimes we can use that quite negatively. You just got to accept it, tolerate it, put up with it. That's not what Paul means at all. Paul, the original word, has the idea of receive one another behind it. John Stott, in his brilliant book on Romans, Um, has a beautiful phrase to sum this up. He says that accepting one another means welcoming someone into your fellowship and into your heart. There it is. That's what it means to be a family, to welcome each other into our hearts with all our differences. Now, there's loads of ways that we could apply this, but Paul has one specific application in mind, one particular concern that he sees as he looks at the church. And that is how the strong in faith relate to those who are weak. Those are the two categories that he talks of in Romans 14. Within this family, there'll be some who are strong in faith and some who are weak. Now, again, we need to stop and think, well, what do those words mean? The danger is that we misunderstand those words. I mean, in our culture, to be weak is negative, right? I mean, always. I can't think of any positive use of the word weak. You know, he's a weak leader. That was... That squash is a little bit weak. It's, it's a negative thing. So we find ourselves all saying, well, I want to be a strong one. But actually, that would be to misunderstand what Paul says in Romans 14. He's not using weak in a particularly negative sense. He doesn't tell the weak to stop being weak. And that's obvious just from the way you read the passage. You see, both the strong and the weak are people of faith. They both have faith. Both the strong and the weak honor God. Both one through eating their meat, one through eating their vegetables, but their desire is to please God. They do it to the Lord. It's verse 6. Both of them are concerned to live lives that please God. They're both groups for whom Christ died. It's not that the strong are somehow better able to please God than the weak. Not at all. The weak are just as able to please God as the strong. The weak are not some second class category of Christian. No, this difference is all to do with the decisions that they make regarding various issues. What Paul talks in verse 1 of as disputable matters. Or we might say matters of opinion. 
The reason that these guys are called weak is because there are some areas where they still feel duty-bound to follow rules and regulations that no longer apply to them because of Jesus, but they still feel a conscience that they should live that way. So you can imagine a, someone who's been brought up in a Jewish home, who's followed Jewish food laws all their life. They come, they meet Jesus, but they still feel a guilt and a conscience about what they eat. And so they decide in order to please Jesus, they're going to continue to obey those rules. Now, this is different. Okay, we must be careful here. This is not that they're trying to, please, you know, trying to earn their salvation. This is not work salvation. This is people saying, I want to please you, Jesus, and I think I can please you by doing this. That's who they are. So I guess it'd be like someone who struggled with an alcohol addiction who comes to meet Jesus and they say, I'm never going to touch alcohol again in my life. That comes from a heart of wanting to please Jesus. That's not a rule that every Christian is bound by, but it comes from a heart of wanting to please him. You see, there are opinions where we will come to different ideas, different thoughts. Now, the trouble happens in a family when opinions become absolutes. I mean, this was the trouble. I remember this when I was uh, young. Uh, me and my brother had very different opinions when it came to music. He liked the Osric tentacles. I didn't. But in some ways, that was okay until our opinions turned into absolutes. We're sitting in the car, and I'm listening, and I say, this is the worst piece of music that has ever been written in the history of humanity. I've made an opinion into an absolute. Of course, he flares up and retorts, how dare you? The Osric Tentacles are the greatest musicians since the days of Mozart, end of, period. And suddenly we're into this big argument where we're judging one another and fighting about an opinion. It was only an opinion. And that can happen within church where opinions become absolutes. I mean, there are trivial things. We have all sorts of opinions that sometimes become absolutes, like the way you squeeze your toothpaste. You've been in, living in a house with someone who squeezes their toothpaste. Wrong. Or the way you make a cup of tea. Man, people have strong opinions about this. I feel nervous even stepping into this ground. But there was a TikTok video this week of a mother and daughter making a cup of tea using a microwave and putting the milk in at the wrong point. And you could feel people getting so stressed and angry about them doing it wrong. Now, those are trivial things. But that can happen in church. We can turn things that really should be opinions and suddenly make them into absolutes. So look, there are two boxes. There are opinions and there are absolutes. There really are things that are absolutes in the church. That's what Paul has been setting out in Romans chapters 1 to 11. The mercy of God is an absolute that God sent his son Jesus to die on a cross to bear the punishment our sin deserves, that through Jesus we are justified by faith, that Jesus was raised from the dead to declare his identity as the son of God, to seal our justification and to guarantee our future. Those are absolutes. Our family identity rests on those absolutes and we hold those absolutely. Where God has spoken clearly on subjects in the Bible, they are absolutes that we must listen to and we must accept. And some churches make the mistake of turning absolutes into opinions. Say, well, it doesn't really matter what you believe. Don't worry about it. It doesn't really matter. It doesn't matter what God says. Just believe whatever you want to believe. 
And we want to say, no, we must hold the absolutes very tightly. If someone says, I don't really believe Jesus rose from the dead, that's a problem. That's part of our family identity. That's part of who we are. And so one danger is that we just make everything a matter of opinion. But the other danger, and that's the one I think that Paul has got in mind here, is that we turn opinions into absolutes. That we're so dogmatic on everything that you have to agree with every little detail of what we think it means to be a Christian in order to be part of our family. And that stifles everything. That creates a herd, not a family. Do you know, there is a whole load of stuff in this box labeled opinions. Those opinions will be shaped by our background, by our culture, by our upbringing, by our personality, by our temperament, by our struggles, by our, all of these things that make us who we are. And we express our individuality and we think about it and we might make decisions that other people don't understand. And it's in that realm, the realm of opinions, that we must accept one another, welcome each other into our hearts. Because actually, diversity when it comes to opinions makes our family richer and it makes our family better. So accept one another. And this attitude of acceptance, which is to shape our family, it is resting on three theological reasons. It's not because it's a nice way to live. There are three theological reasons why we should accept each other. That's what Paul now sets out in this first bit of Romans 14. Firstly, accept one another because God has accepted us. That's verses two and three. One person's faith allows them to eat anything, but another whose faith is weak eats only vegetables. The one who eats everything must not treat with contempt the one who does not, and the one who does not eat everything must not judge the one who does. For God has accepted them. So here's the deal. Paul looks at this church and he says, I can see that, let's take this issue of food. There are some Christians who are saying, we're free. Jesus set us free, therefore we can eat anything and we can eat meat to the glory of God. But there's another group who, who, like we were saying about the Jewish food laws, they still feel a guilt about that, a conscience. And so they say, I, I think in order to please Jesus, it would be better if I didn't eat meat. Now, the danger is that the strong Christian looks down on the weaker Christian and, and treats them with contempt, sort of patronizing. Oh, poor you. Or they say things like this, you're such a Pharisee. You're such a legalist. Have you ever heard people say this? We shouldn't talk like that. You know, lighten up. Stop being so boring and rigid. That's not how we treat one another. On matters of opinion, we accept one another. So the danger is the strong kind of look down on the weak, but the danger is then that the weak who... Ha- who have this stronger sense of conscience, look at the strong eating meat and they say, well, you're not a very serious Christian, are you? You don't love Jesus as much as I do. Look at what I'm giving up for Jesus. You're just a kind of hedonist, carnal Christian. And we judge one another. So these ones look down on them. They look at them and judge them. And there's suspicion of one another and there's blame and there's finger pointing. And Paul cuts through all of that And he says, you know what? God accepts both of you. You eating meat, God accepts you. You not eating meat, God accepts you. He accepts you both. 
sometimes, perhaps even oftentimes, we are less welcoming than God is. We set a higher bar than God does. We're more suspicious of other people's motives than God is. So listen to it, please. Brothers and sisters, please listen. God has accepted you. Some of you need to hear that again and again and again. You feel weak. You feel like a failure. You feel, you look at others in the church, you think, oh, I'm nowhere near as good as them. I wish I could be free, but I just feel crushed by guilt all the time. Listen, God loves you. He's accepted you. He sent his son to die for you. He's adopted you as his son or his daughter. You are his and he's accepted you. He's welcomed you into his heart. And he's also welcomed them. And therefore, we must accept one another. The grounds of our acceptance doesn't rest upon the quality of our opinions. It rests upon the absolute work of Jesus on the cross, the mercy of God. Therefore, we welcome one another into our hearts. Are there people within the church who you treat with contempt? People who you look down on, they're a bit flaky, not very, not very mature. But like in the school football team, you know, there's always one kid who's not very good. And every time they get the ball, they trip over or mess it up. And everyone just kind of rolls their eyes and tuts and goes, no, he's so rubbish. You know, they're not the star player that gets all the praise. Has that ever happened within church? There are no star players within church. God has accepted us. And therefore, we love one another. We welcome one another. We treat one another generously, not with suspicion, because God has accepted us. That's the first theological reason. Here's the second. Accept one another because there's only one Lord. This is from verse 4. Let's pick up at verse 4. Who are you to judge someone else's servant? To their own master, servants stand or fall, and they will stand, for the Lord is able to make them stand. Here's the argument. Servants only answer to their master. That's it. So uh, you've got a boss at work. Let's call her Gertrude. It is only Gertrude's opinion of your work that matters. You stand or fall on her opinion. So here comes Eric, one of your colleagues. He comes to criticize you. His criticism does not count for anything because only Gertrude's opinion is what matters. That's what Paul is arguing. He's saying Jesus is your boss. He's your master. He's your Lord. It is only his opinion of you that counts. And we may say, well, that's a bit terrifying to think that I stand or fall based on what Jesus thinks of me because he knows everything about me. Oh, but what a Lord he is. Just look at the end of verse four. I love this. You stand or fall to, to Jesus and to their own master, um, and they will stand, for the Lord is able to make them stand. Do you hear that? You stand or fall to Jesus, and you will stand, because Jesus will make you stand. You see, he's not a master who's always watching for us to make a mistake. He's always looking critically to try and trip us up and to point out our errors. He's a master who wants us to stand, who enables us to stand, who gives us the power to stand rather than fall. You have a Lord, but it's not the people around you. It's Jesus. So make your decisions to the Lord. He's your master. That's what happens in verse 5. One person considers one day more sacred than another. Another considers every day alike. Each of them should be fully convinced in their own mind. 
So here's another issue. Have an opinion on these things. It's good to have opinions. It's good to say, how can I please Jesus? Do I treat every day the same or do I have one day that's different? How do I do that? But you make that decision not on the basis of what everyone else tells you and thinks of you, but you make that decision based on how you can please Jesus. So it's good to have opinions. What do you think about the best way to use Sunday? What do you think about drinking alcohol? What do you believe about the right way to be baptized? What do you think about what you eat? What do you think about how long you should pray for? What do you think about when and how you should fast? What do you think about whether you should raise your hands when you sing or not? Do you get the, did you get the idea? Have opinions on these things, but have those opinions to the Lord. Christians will come to different opinions on all those things. And do you know what? That's okay. In fact, that's good. That's what makes us family. We hold those opinions to the Lord. I mean, it's so obvious when, you, when I just read it. Listen to it. Verse 6. Whoever regards one day special does so to the Lord. Whoever eats meat does so to the Lord, for they give thanks to God. And whoever abstains does so to the Lord and gives thanks to God. For none of us lives for ourselves alone. None of us dies for ourselves alone. If we live, we live for the Lord. If we die, we die for the Lord. So whether we live or die, we belong to the Lord. Do you get the point? Live your life to the Lord, to the Lord, for the Lord, because you belong to the Lord. Make your decisions for him. Decide how you can live to please him. So here is a Christian who is having a glass of wine to the Lord and he is, Jesus is pleased with him. Here is a Christian who is not having a glass of wine to the Lord and the Lord is pleased with him. The danger is that these two look at each other and they judge each other. This one says you're a Pharisee and this one says, well, you're just not very serious. <laughs> we do it to the Lord. We do not have to justify ourselves to one another. Jesus is our Lord. And he can be our Lord because he alone has authority over life and death itself. Verse 9, for this very reason Christ died and returned to life so that he might be the Lord of both the dead and the living. If anyone else tries to tell you what to do, what opinions to have, you look them in the eye and you say, sorry, did you die and rise again? Have you ever done that? Because I'm going to commit my life to the one who died and rose again for me. I'm going to commit my life to the Lord. I'm going to listen to him. I'm going to seek to live a life that pleases him. I'm going to make decisions that I think honor him. So brothers and sisters, can I say, please beware of overbearing leaders who want to tell you all their opinions and demand that you conform to them. Beware of leaders like that. We're a family, not a herd. You should also beware of leaders who refuse to ever tell you the absolutes. But that's another sermon for another day. But you know, we can be so suspicious of one another, so distrusting of one another. So look, I'm, I'm going to give you some examples. I'm trying to give you examples so you can really feel this. Here is a Christian who's been offered a promotion at work. It comes with an increased salary and increased responsibility. And so they pray about that opportunity and they're concerned about the temptation of the extra money and they're concerned about the busyness being, stopping them being able to serve as much at church. And so to the Lord, they turn down the promotion. 
And it's a beautiful and sacrificial act in Jesus' eyes. Here's a Christian who's been offered a promotion at work. It comes with increased responsibility and increased money. So they pray about it. And as they pray about it, they come to the conviction that actually God has gifted them for this particular role. They have a desire to serve him in the workplace. They have a passion to use the money, the extra money that they'll have to serve him in other ways. And so to the Lord, they take the job. And it's a beautiful and a sacrificial act. Do you see how freedom, there's freedom, but we've got to then learn to accept one another and trust one another's opinions. The danger is that this one just looks at this one and thinks he's sold out. This one that looks at this one and thinks he's just a bit too serious. Let's trust one another because Jesus is our Lord. There's one third theological reason we need to do this quickly. Accept one another because there's only one judge. Verse 10, you then, why do you judge your brother or sister? Why do you treat them with contempt? We'll all stand before God's judgment seat. It is written, as surely as I live, says the Lord, every knee will bow before me, every tongue will acknowledge God. So then each of us will give an account of ourselves to God. Therefore, let us stop passing judgment on one another. Instead, make up your mind not to put any stumbling block or obstacle in the way of a brother or sister. Don't judge one another. Don't sit with our pointy fingers, our critical hearts, looking out for all the ways that people are making mistakes. Let's not pass verdicts on one another. We sometimes speak like that. We speak in ways that pass a verdict on someone. This person is this. We're not to judge. That's God's job. And one day we'll stand before God and give an account. And we may say, well, that sounds terrifying. Yet it's only terrifying until you remember that the God that we will give account to is the God who sent his son to die for us. He loves you and has accepted you already. He's already passed his verdict on you. So we will give an account for our life. And we will give an account for all the decisions we've made. But we'll give it to the God who loves us. So make your decisions based on the fact that you'll stand before God as judge, don't let others judge you. Now, at this point, it it does get a little bit complicated because we say, well, does that mean we can never kind of rebuke each other or call each other out? Well, the Bible's clear in other places that out of love for each other, there are times when we say, brother, I think you're wrong on this issue. But we do that with humility We do that with gentleness. We do that recognizing our own failure and our own sin. And we come and we say, can can I help you? That's being family. This isn't straightforward. I get that. This is hard. Sometimes it's hard to decide whether something goes in the opinion box or the absolute box. I know that this isn't absolutely clear. But that's as a family where we work at this. But we work at it loving each other trusting each other, thinking the best of each other, accepting one another because God has accepted us, because there's only one Lord and there's only one judge. Brothers and sisters, let's not be a hurt. Let's not try and conform. Let's be a family, a family who welcome each other into our hearts. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we ask that you would please help us to live this, to be this, to be this family that you've called us to be. In Jesus' name, amen.